Today's uh, message is entitled, Broken Hearts, Building Hope. And we're going to be looking at three enemies of our spiritual well-being. Three enemies of the soul, three enemies of your inner spiritual heart. And I'm going to, yeah, I've got to acknowledge that there's probably more than three enemies of our inner heart, but today we're only going to be looking at three. When the enemies of our inner spiritual heart uh, remain unchecked, when they go unaddressed, we remain in a spiritual um, bondage and spiritual shackles that continually threaten to undermine our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Before we jump into it, um, I want to acknowledge that much of today's content is inspired by the book Enemies of the Heart by Andy Stanley. Today's scripture comes from Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 through 27. And for those of you who were not in attendance last weekend, Ezekiel was a prophet who ministered to the nation of Israel while the nation of Israel was held captive in Babylon. The Babylon captivity, which uh, was about uh, in the year um, 590 B.C. Today's scripture comes from a section of Ezekiel that's called that, that, that scholars call the Oracles of Consolation meaning it's a section of Ezekiel intended to bring comfort and to inspire Israel in the midst of the Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Uh, The sovereign Lord said to Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. This is God's word to us this morning. Amen. Uh, this past week, I had the opportunity to catch up with a longtime member of our church. His name is Jonathan Laurie, and uh, he shared a little of his story with me, and I'm going to share it with you. Uh, Stonebridge, uh, something happened to me about four years ago. Um, anyway, four years ago, I was uh, driving to work on a Monday morning. Um, felt like I had serious indigestion. So I actually thought oh, I should pull over at Vaughn's going to work and pick up some antacid. But I didn't. I had something due that morning, so I just continued on to work. Um, you know, got to my desk, pulled up my uh, pull-up spreadsheet, you know, started to create a PowerPoint for a presentation that was due actually the middle of the day. And uh, I wasn't feeling good. Um, uh, indigestion was getting worse, and then I, I started feeling dizzy and sort of nauseous. So I said, okay, something's wrong with me. So I got up out of my desk and thought, okay, I need to go over to medical. And I walked out my building, got about 10 feet out, and realized I'm not going to make it over to medical. So I turned around, came back in the building, and I thought, okay, who's here? I knew uh, my program manager was here because I was just on the phone with him a little earlier. So I walked into his office and said, hey, I don't feel good. And uh, at that point, I actually collapsed in his office. Um, I still remember the look on his face, um, sort of one of shock and horror. 
as he ended up calling 911, and I got to uh, take a trip via uh, West Hills Hospital, uh, courtesy of the LA City paramedics. Uh, um, what was going on? I was actually having a heart attack. Um, so I got to experience into the emergency room, emergency room, a lot of people jump on, you know, prep, send me over to cath lab, um, didn't tell me anything of what was going on, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm being put out so that um, they could go in and explore and find out what blockage I have in my heart. Um, anyway... Uh, that experience led to, uh, I ended up with a stent in my left anterior descending, which uh, had a 70%, 60%, and a 40% plug in it. Um, but during their investigation, they also found out that my right coronary artery was 100% plugged. Um, so given what they could do, they put a stent in the 70% plug and um, decided that's what they could do that day um, and then released me. Um, since then, I have uh, undergone six more angiograms and I have a total of seven stents in my heart, three in my LAD. And uh, in 2017, uh, Dr. Donald Cedars was actually successful in reopening my right coronary artery. Um, so I have a total of seven stents in my heart right now. Uh, now, I had thought that, you know, I understood that my dad had a heart attack um, at 58. At this time that I had it, I was 54. I thought that, okay, well, I think I'm in better shape than my dad was. And uh, I thought that uh, I was under less stress than he was, but I wasn't. <laughs> Um, which uh, led me to uh, really looking at my lifestyle, uh, looking at what I was eating, what I was, uh, how I was exercising, um, how much time I was actually spending on my health, um, which was none, um, prior to the heart attack, and realizing that I had to keep myself healthy in order to serve and to take care of my family. So I've had to make changes to my lifestyle over the past four years. Well, that's uh, pretty scary stuff. And I imagine uh, there's other people here who have uh, maybe been faced with similar circumstances in their own lives. When our physical heart gets sick, it is literally life-threatening. In the same way uh, that physical reasons can lead us, right, if bad enough, lead us to the hospital in the same way that Jonathan was sent to the hospital, so too there are enemies of our heart that undermine and threaten our relationship with God and undermine and threaten our relationship with others. And so today we're going to be looking at some of those enemies. The first enemy I want to uh, talk about today, enemies of our inner spiritual heart, enemy number one, is guilt. Guilt. Now, some of you may not know this, but I uh, was uh, a, an economics pr um, 
my, my major in college was economics, and so some of the language that we're going to be using to, to describe the enemies of the heart is economic language. And the first enemy of the heart that I want to address today is guilt. And in economic language, guilt translates to I-O-U. Guilt translates to I-O-U. So, um, here's the illustration that we're going to use for a little bit. Um, imagine it's Sunday afternoon, and um, you need to go shopping, and so you're going to go to Costco. Costco on a Sunday afternoon. Now, some of you smile because you know exactly what that's like, right? Uh, worst time to go to Costco is probably Sunday afternoon, uh, or so my wife tells me. And no, thank you. So, uh, right? So you go to Costco, and it's all about, it, it's busy, there's no parking, and it's as if everybody is just circling like sharks looking for a parking space. And, uh, and, and you're driving, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, fortune just comes your way, and as you're driving down that parking aisle, you see the backup lights turn on of a car, and you're like, your spirit jumps. You're like, yes! As you're pulling down, you also see that there's a car in, coming in the opposite direction with their left-hand light for that same spot. Well, the car pulls out, and you just quickly sneak in there and take that spot. <laughs> you laugh, because it's true, right? And then you're looking in your mirrors, and that car is still there, right? So you harden your heart, and as beautiful as your eyes are, they turn this cold gray steel you put your sunglasses on, you get out of your car, you stiffen your neck, and you, drive, and you walk straight to the entrance of Costco without looking at them. True story, huh? Yeah, your, your laughter is actually an admission, right, of the guilt, the guilt that you feel. Well, that guilt is like an indicator light on your dashboard telling you uh, that Perhaps you've stolen something that wasn't rightfully yours. You've stolen someone, something that is actually someone else's. Now, truth be told, there are a lot of things much worse than stealing a parking space at Costco on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, if you steal from your employer, there's an inner guilt that is going to be communicating, I owe my employer. Uh, if a spouse and a parent abandons their family, that person has stolen from the well-being of their family. And I could go on. And too often, it's the offended person or the offended persons that end up paying the price. Rightfully, guilt sets in. Now, guilt translates to I-O-U. And every act we do that results in this feeling of guilt is somehow an act of theft. There's even an idiom in our language that reflects this. When we wrong someone, what do we say? I owe them an apology. Guilt translates to I-O-U. Are you living your life under the weight of of a guilty conscience. Are you living your life under the weight of a guilty conscience? Well, there's good news. There is hope. There is a remedy for the guilt that you may be feeling. Um, so I'm going to warn you now that I am keeping the bar high. Um, 
I'm not even talking about it yet, but I'm giving you a warning. I think there are some times in our lives when the bar is high and when the road is difficult, we tend to just justify and make up reasons why we should actually lower the bar. The bar. But instead, I, I'm just going to keep the bar high, recognizing uh, that it, it's, it's work to get there, and it requires God's grace and Holy Spirit working within us to get there. Keeping the bar high. Four steps that are a remedy to guilt. A four-step process. And I'm going to begin with the word repentance. Repentance. Now, you've heard it before. You've heard me say it. You've probably heard other pastors say it, that repentance in the New Testament, if you actually look at the, 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 that word in the original Greek, repentance uh, literally translated means turning. Um, I, I've talked about this idea of you're heading in one direction, it's the wrong direction, and, and repentance can be like a 180 turn a turn in a new direction, in the right direction. And that is true, but when I thought about repentance this week, and the reason why I'm starting with the first step in addressing the guilt that we may be living in, um, I want, because I think it's true, I think another way of thinking about repentance is change. And the question is, do you want to change? Repentance is changing the course we're in. Do you want to change? And I think um, Pastor Jeff has said this before, uh, so I'm going to simply repeat it because I think there's a lot of truth in it. Too often, uh, people do not change because they see the light. Oftentimes, people change because they feel the heat, right? It hurts, and we want to change. And unfortunately for some of us, um, we have a high tolerance to pain. So some of us are actually more quick to change than others because we can just tolerate a higher sense of pain. So repentance is change. And the question is, is the guilt that you are feeling painful enough that you want to change? All right. The second step to remedying guilt is confession. Confession. There's uh, a favored uh, verse uh, that I've committed to memory, um, and some of you may be familiar with it. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, there's good news in that. Um, and I, I think for many believers, um, the act of confession has become something that is very private. Something that you do, and it's between you and God, and you move on. And so at the end of the day, you can review your day, or at the end of the week, you review your week, and you look at all the things that you've messed up and blown, and you privately pray to God, and you confess all of these wrongs. And what happens is the next day, or in the next few moments, or wherever, you feel better. And so Andy Stanley argues that... that Unfortunately, sometimes in our Christian walk, confession has become a private thing that we do with God, which I, we, I'm endorsing. I'm not saying that's wrong. But what happens is that it's kind of, uh, it relieves conscience, but it doesn't, back to repentance, it doesn't change our behavior. It just makes us feel better. And then one day or two days goes by and, and you're back into the rut of that bad habit. You're back in that rut, and you're feeling, in that, in that bad habit, you're feeling that guilt again. And so you're stuck. Repentance, again, is change. Confession not only 
is a private conversation between you and God, but uh, can also be, right? I'm, I'm going to keep the bar. I'm not going to say, oh, let's just lower the bar. I'm going to keep the bar high. If you're really uh, seeking change, another thing that you can do with regards to confession is with a trusted friend, a trusted Christian friend, a prayer partner, perhaps a Christian spiritual mentor or a spiritual sponsor, you go public. You share what it is that you are struggling with with someone you trust. And by doing that, trust me, there will be empowerment. Um, now, if you're on the other side of that, if you are the person that someone, someone comes to you and shares what they're struggling with, um, you're the mentor, um, you're the trusted prayer partner, ways not to respond Part one. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you did. That's terrible. Not going to help. Going to break trust. Um, and that person will never be encouraged to go through this process again. Right? Certainly, that's true. Now, another thing uh, that I would say not to do is to be prescriptive. To go, oh, yeah, I'm very familiar with that. Um, my Aunt Sally went through that. And in order for my Aunt Sally to deal with that struggle, they jumped through this hoop, and they jumped through this hoop, and they jumped over this hurdle, and they climbed that mountain in order to deal with that problem. You know what I suggest for you? I suggest that you jump through this hoop, jump through this hoop, climb that mountain, you know, and jump this hurdle. That's prescriptive. And I guarantee you that... What if people, if a person is truly struggling and wants change in their lives and has summoned the inner courage and strength to come to you and share it, most of that time, most of the time, that person knows exactly what they need to do. And what they are looking for, to you for is support and encouragement and sympathy. Um, and, and the best question in that truly, that sacred moment, is to just ask the question, how do you want me to help you? Repentance, do you want to change? Confession, taking it before God, but, but risking taking it to someone else for that, that encouragement um, and that accountability. Um, the next step, the third step to this process of dealing with guilt, is restitution. Restitution. There's a story in the Bible uh, from Luke chapter 19, and it's uh, known as the story of Zacchaeus, and this is a true event. Uh, if any of you have been here long enough, I once told this story of Zacchaeus in a children's message right here, and uh, I'm notorious for the way I told that story. I'm not going to tell you that story that way, um, but ask someone. Bad moment, but I am going to tell it to you again today. Zacchaeus, what we need to know about Zacchaeus. So Jesus at this point... Uh, in his ministry, had been preaching, teaching, healing. Crowds are following him. Um, uh, so uh, he enters into this village where Zacchaeus is living. And the, and the thing, the two things we need to know about Zacchaeus is that he's a tax collector. I'll say more about that in a second. The second thing we need to know about Zacchaeus, uh, he's a tax collector and, he, and he's wealthy. And the second thing we need to know is that Zacchaeus is short. Now, um, just this past week over New Year's, uh, we all go to the Rose Bowl Parade. We get up early and drive to the Rose Bowl Parade. And my daughter is also short. And 
every year we go, we make sure, and we always show up late, and be, so we're behind the crowd, and there's the rose parade, but we always bring, what, a, a step stool so that she can climb up on the step stool so that she can look over on everybody to see the parade. Zacchaeus is short. Jesus is coming into, there's a, a one-man parade, and it's Jesus, and he's coming to town, and there's a crowd with him. Wherever he goes, there were crowds. So Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus climbs a tree to see Jesus. He climbs a tree. And I imagine there's a moment where Jesus is walking into that town, and there's this crowd of people, and then there's that, there's somebody in the tree. And there's that moment, eye-to-eye contact. And Jesus looks at him, and he goes, today, what is your name? And the guy, he says, Zacchaeus. And he goes, Zacchaeus, today I'm coming to your house for dinner. I mean, how rude. He just invites himself over to dinner. So, so the story then jumps, and, and we don't know all the details. Um, and and it, we, we can only surmise the details based on the conclusion of the story, which is to say Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, and I imagine there's something about spending time with Jesus. There's something about j- spending significant time with Jesus that a hardened heart begins to soften. And so at the end of this story, now I, I need to go back a bit. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And um, historically, with the Romans, what would happen is the Roman Empire outsourced tax collecting. So the Romans want their piece of the pie. That's the taxes. And then the outsourced tax collector would add their processing fee on top of that. Thing is, the processing fee was pretty much subjective. So I'm sure there were honest tax collectors, but I'm sure there were dishonest tax collectors, Zacchaeus, who's just like, here's the taxes, and then here's my processing fee. And so Zacchaeus is a very wealthy person. He's, he's the person with the big house, um, and he lives in this community. But the truth is, the, the people in the community don't like Zacchaeus. In fact, he, because he's Jewish and because he's working on behalf of the, Roman, the Romans, he's like a, a turncoat. So he's actually rejected within the community. So this is what we gather at the end of the party. That at the end of the party, there's something about spending time with Jesus that Zacchaeus says, if I have wronged or stolen anything from anyone, I'm going to pay them back four times what I owe. At which point, Jesus' response is, salvation has come to this house today. It's a proclamation of joy and celebration. Salvation has come to this house today because Zacchaeus is going to seek restitution with the people that he has wronged. So the point is, if we throw a rock and break a window, we're expected to pay for the broken window. Now, you may notice on the screen behind me that there's an asterisk next to the word restitution. I'm going to come back to that. I want to talk about the next step, which is restoration. When we want change in our lives, when we bring it before God and we bring it before someone that we trust and uh, seek that uh, support and encouragement to take the step of restitution, what is inevitable is that restoration will happen in our relationships with others. And what is inevitable is that restoration, there will be a sense of peace that grows in our heart with regards to guilt. So guilt will diminish and inner peace will be grow stronger. Our heart of stone will become a heart of flesh. Now, I I have an asterisk next to restitution and restoration because over the last several years, I have learned a lot from my 
Christian brothers and sisters in 12-step recovery programs. And what they have taught me in all of their literature and what they have taught me that I'm going to share with you is that there are times. Now, oh, I should, and I should, and I should uh, say this, and that is the 12 steps uh, of recovery are based on biblical principles. And there are times in restoration uh, and in restitution when, uh, it, when we're trying to do the right thing, when we're trying to help, but in, in, in trying to help, we are actually going to make things worse for the people that we're trying to connect with. So there are times, um, prayerfully, you are going to seek to restitution and restoration. And truly, and I've experienced this in my life, in my life and in lives of others, where, you know, God just places on your heart. I, I truly know someone who was in worship one day and was so convicted, they picked up the phone immediately after, this was before cell phones, they literally went to a phone, picked up a phone, and called someone. And there was reconciliation and restitution and, and the whole thing within a half hour after a worship service. So it can happen, and that's a glorious thing. There are other times where that can be damaging because there are times when our uh, people in our lives have moved on. They've, God has been working in their lives in their own way, uh, and they've moved on and moved forward. And we are so excited in this process that we jump into their life. <laughs> Surprise! Hello, I'm here, and I want to make everything better. And, and, and instead of making things better, uh, it, it's like pushing all of their buttons. It's flipping all their switches, and especially, and you would understand this in terms of... Um, of, of um, addiction and so forth, it actually causes a downward spiral and does more damage than it does good. And so all I'm saying is that it requires a lot of discernment, um, which is all the more reason why we might want to invite someone into that process to be praying with us to figure out those next steps. So my question to you is, are you under a cloud of guilt? And is it enough that you're hurting and want to change? If so, I encourage you to repent, confess, and prayerfully discern steps of restitution and restoration. Okay, that was enemy number one, guilt. Enemy number two, enemy number two of our inner spiritual hearts, anger. In economic terms, if guilt equates to I owe you, then anger equates to you owe me. You owe me. Let's go back to the parking lot at Costco on Sunday afternoon. Instead of the per that smart aleck in that smart car that just pulled into the space, right? You're the person who goes, oh my goodness, I got to go to Costco today. It's going to be a madhouse. So you kind of change your, I'm just going to go, I'm going to exercise patience. I'm just going to go there and get what I need done. And as you're, you're the person that drives driving down that aisle sees those lights going and your spirit is like there's my space and you put on your left hand blinker click 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 and then somebody pulls in in front of you and takes the space that you were waiting for now, how does that make you feel i mean just telling the story kind of i mean resentment uh, bitterness all words for anger you're angry why because you're a victim, and you're a victim of circumstances that were completely under your, not within your control. I mean, the thing about um, anger is that we have a lot of reasons to justify why we feel the way we feel. 
And if, if anger equates to you owe me, then I, we're basically, we're more interested in getting compensated for the wrong that has been caused to us. We are more interested in you owe me. And so even though we know, I mean, rationally, we all know that anger is this negative energy within us, we somehow also justify to holding on to it. And it just, it just made me think of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's scary. But it's the perfect illustration of this. The thing about Gollum is that if you know the story of The Lord of the Rings, Gollum was at one time a beautiful being. And, and the power of the ring, he wants the ring, the power of the ring so much that it turns him into this ugly, like, monster thing. And, and the ring itself, right, in the, in, in, in the Lord of the Rings, the ring is power. And we are like Gollum, in terms of anger, we are like Gollum. Because anger is a very powerful emotion. When we get angry and express it, have you ever noticed that people kind of like, shy away from us? I mean, that's something that's imprinted us as a child. At some point as a child, we, we stamp our feet and get angry, and all of a sudden people kind of go, ooh. And we experience that as, ooh, I have a power here. And so we experience anger as power, and we hold on to it. But the, the problem is, when we hold on to the anger, it's really turning us on the inside into this ugly thing. It's hardening our heart, and it's endangering us. Anger is a destructive enemy of our heart. Are you living your life harboring anger in your heart? Are you harboring anger in your heart? There's good news. There's hope. And the antidote to anger is forgiveness. Now, too often forgiveness is misunderstood as a gift that (laughs) <laughs> that benefits the perpetrator of the crime that's been committed against us. And it is. When we exercise forgiveness, we are gifting those who have offended us, but only in a secondary way. When we exercise, and I'm emphasizing the word em- exercise, when we exercise forgiveness, we are primarily actually gifting ourselves with the biblically divine means of healing. Exercising forgiveness has a way of spiritually diminishing and extracting that negative power that we are holding on to within us. I'm not using the word exercise lightly. In Matthew chapter 18, there's a conversation uh, that's recorded between Peter and Jesus. Now, at this point, Peter has been spending a lot of time with Jesus, and I imagine that, G- that Peter kind of feels like, oh, I'm finally getting this Jesus guy and what he's teaching, this grace, this unconditional love of God, and so, so on and so forth. And so it's, he, he asks a question, and then he answers his own question. And I imagine what he's expecting is like Jesus to come up to Peter and just go, God, good job, Peter. You are awesome, dude. The question is that, 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 that Peter proposes is, how many times should I forgive a brother or sister who, who, who offends me, that sins against me. And then he goes on to answer it. And his answer isn't one time or two times or three times. I mean, we might expect that in our own human nature. I can forgive him a couple times. But so Peter kind of ups the bar. 
Peter's like, how many times should we forgive our brother and sister who offends us? Seven times? Here, come, come on, pat me on the back, man. I'm so awesome. Jesus' response is, no, 70 times seven times. Now, that is not just a mathematical equation for forgiveness. Um, what that implies is forgiveness infinity. And what occurred to me this week as I looked at that scripture is I think, and maybe you would agree with me on this, I, I think I have misunderstood forgiveness as like a train station that I arrive to. And you, you get to the train station, and at that train station there's this, uh, you know, the, the inner narrative and the imagination. It's like a ceremony. And the person who has stolen from us and offended us, I've got all this anger, the person comes and, and comes before me and says, please forgive me, Jonathan. And I, you know, take my little crown or whatever and go, you are forgiven. And there's this moment of celebration. And then, right, that's the station. And then we leave the station. And when we leave the station, it's like, right, we use terms like this. We are going to leave it behind us. That's behind us now. And it's a moment in time that happens, and then we move forward. I think that's a misunderstanding based on, on the scripture from Matthew 18 and this interaction between Peter and Jesus. Because what Jesus is saying is that it's not a one-time thing. It keeps going. And so maybe a better understanding of forgiveness would be thinking of forgiveness as a muscle that we need to exercise. And the more we exercise it, the stronger our heart becomes. That as we exercise the muscle of forgiveness, this anger just begins to diminish and become less and less powerful in our lives. So, are you struggling with anger? I would encourage you to prayerfully discern steps towards forgiving those who have wronged you. And in so doing, find God's healing in your heart. Enemy number three to our spiritual inner heart, greed. Greed. Now, if guilt is I owe you, and anger is you owe me, get this, greed equates to, get this, I owe me. Greed equates to I owe me. One definition of greed is an excessive desire for more an excessive desire for more. Now, in the spirit of Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck If, are you familiar with this? Oh, you're already laughing, wonderful. <laughs> in the spirit of the comedian Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck If, you might be a redneck if, for example, your family tree is a shrub. You might be a redneck if you think the stock market has a fence around it and is full of livestock. You might be a redneck if your school alma mater is dueling banjos. That's my favorite one. Okay, in that same spirit, here we go. I'm going to share with you, uh, you might struggle with greed if. You might struggle with greed if you quibble over insignificant amounts of money. Oh, that's not so funny. You might struggle with greed if you try to control people with money. You might struggle with greed if you aren't content with what you have. 
you might struggle with greed if you're reluctant to share. Greed, greed equates to you owe me. I'm sorry, I owe me. Greed is I owe me. Greed is an excessive desire for more. Jesus warns, be on the lookout for all types of greed. In Luke chapter 12, uh, in response to that teaching, be on lookout for all types of greed in your life. Jesus then inf- uh, reinforces that teaching with a story. And the story is this. Uh, Jesus told this story, Luke chapter 12. Uh, the ground of a certain rich farmer yielded an abundant harvest. And that farmer thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my excess crops. And so the farmer said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, I have plenty of grain laid up for many years to come. Then I will take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But then God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be taken. And who will get your excesses now? Now, laced with several truths, Jesus' story is a warning. The farmer in the story wrongly believes he's entitled to the extra himself because he earned it. The deception is that the farmer didn't necessarily earn it. The farmer has no more control over the weather that yields an extra crop than you or I do Truth be told, the farmer was blessed by an extra crop. He didn't earn it. Therefore, the farmer's attitude of self-entitlement is actually ill-founded. Secondly, the farmer wrongly assumes that the extra of the crop is intended for him. Let me say that again. He wrongly assumes that the extra of the crop is intended for him. So question Why doesn't the farmer just assume that the extra crop is meant to be shared with others? Hmm. Lastly, the irony in this story is that the farmer assumed that he'd live a long life to enjoy the extra, only to have his life cut short. To which Jesus implies to us, the listeners of this story, that the extra will be distributed to others either with the farmer's help or without the farmer's help. Now, a lot of what we think we have earned is actually God's blessing in our lives. A lot of what we think we've earned is actually God's provision in our lives. And Jesus' story forces us to consider, what are we doing with the extra? What are we doing with the excess? Greed is an excessive desire for more. Truth is, one aspect of greed is an expression of distrust in God's provision. We might pray, give us this day our daily bread, but in fact, not trusting God, we plan for our own future provision and deceitfully call it good stewardship. And by doing so, we create a false idol in our own image. Greed is an enemy of the heart and it undermines our relationship with God because we stop 
trusting in God. Do you struggle with greed? There's hope. There's good news. There's an antidote to greed. Now, the antidote to greed is threefold. First thing I want to talk about is exercising thanksgiving. Exercising thanksgiving means looking at our lives and being thankful for what we do have instead of being upset about the things we don't have. And this is truly countercultural because in our culture, we are inundated, right? Advertising and marketing, and there is so much in our culture that tells us all the things that you don't have that they're trying to tell you you need. You need that stuff. It's inundating us. We are constantly thinking about things that we don't have instead of stopping taking a breath, and actually giving thanks for the things that we do have. Um, coincidentally, I was reading an article in a magazine called uh, The Weekly, and uh, it was talking about, New because it's January, it was talking about New Year's resolutions and so on, and, and it was talking about things that help people be happy, help people be happier. And there's been studies done, and it talked, there was just this one little paragraph that talked about a Thanksgiving journal. And how when you actually stop and consider all the things that you are thankful for and write them down in a journal, people, they did a study between people who did this and people who didn't do this. The people that kept the Thanksgiving journal had a higher uh, rating for personal happiness. Of course, um, you know, it's not, and, and then actually went on to say that it's not just about material things that when people went further and actually gave thanks for the relationships that they had with others and the healthy relationships that they had with others and with families and so forth, that their ratio was even higher. So the antidote to greed, firstly, is exercising thanksgiving. Secondly, the antidote to greed is practicing generosity. Um, isn't it so, that story really got to me this week. Isn't it interesting that we just assume when extra comes in, why is that? That we just, the assumption is, oh, I got extra and it's mine. I don't know where that comes from. So practicing generosity, specific to that story that Jesus told, that's about extra. It, he sets it up that this farmer has come into extra. What are we going to do with the extra and recognizing what a great opportunity to when we're exercising Thanksgiving and then looking at the extra in so many ways that we are blessed with to consider what can I do with this extra in order to help others, in order to help expand God's kingdom, and so forth. In, now, I, I would be reluctant if I didn't mention this. Biblically speaking, when we talk about giving from the extra in our lives, biblically speaking, that's understood as offerings. So in church, we talk about tithes and offerings. When we give from the extra in our lives, biblically understood, that's giving from the extra in our lives. And I would be, um, I think I'd be negligent if I didn't mention tithing. The Bible encourages tithing. Tithing is the first 10% of all that we earn in our lives. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with tithing, I, I know there are people who like start getting interested in Christian faith, but when they realize that God has expectations on our lives, and one of those expectations biblically is tithing, they're like, oh, I don't know. They think of it like a, it's the God tax. They're like, I don't like any kind of taxes, <laughs> much less a God tax. Here's a better way of thinking about it. If we recognize that greed 
is a threat to the condition of our heart? What if, what if tithing and what if, what if off, giving offerings to God was actually God's prescription for us so that we would be healthier? So exercising thanksgiving, exercising and practicing generosity. Now, when we do these things, ultimately, instead of being dependent on ourselves, we end up exercising more trust in God's provision, which grows us. So the last thing, I said it's a three-fold antidote. And, and when we're exercising thanksgiving and when we're practicing generosity, we end up trusting God more. And putting our trust in God more. And leaning on God more. And when we do that, this power of greed, again, begins to diminish. Our hardened hearts begin to soften. And so today's scripture from Ezekiel talked about hearts of stone being transformed to hearts of flesh. That when our hearts are hard, I mean, we, <laughs> Jonathan Laurie's story, like when our arteries get hard it inevitably leads to destruction. God wants us, <laughs> it's a weird mix of words, wants us to have fertile hearts, supple hearts, open hearts to what the Holy Spirit can do in us and through us. And, <laughs> right, with God's grace and with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit working within us, our lives will be transformed in a way that will honor others, and honor God.